Hey everybody, I'm Jamie Duke. And I'm Joe Fondo. And welcome back to our podcast again, Towel in the Basin. That's right. So Jamie, I have this question. Um, it center, centers around this concept of an echo chamber, okay? Um, I've heard it possibly called an epistemic bubble, and I'm not even sure if that's really even the right term. But here's my question about that. Is it... Is it a danger for Christ, from a Christian perspective? Can we find ourselves in this epistemic bubble or this echo chamber when we do deep thinking on subjects? Uh, well, let me let me get first, see if I can just kind of flesh out exactly what you mean. So give me an example of what you mean by an echo chamber. Because something okay. comes to my mind when you talk about that, but that might not be what you mean. What do you mean? Okay, so... Here's an example that I think a lot of people are going to know well. Uh, we've had an election recently in last, um, you know, this is mid-2021, so we had an election six months ago or eight months ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, this fake news concept, this this idea that sometimes social media platforms can only show you what you want to hear, and so mm-hmm. that you're not getting a true view of the other side. And so then the kind of the extension question that comes out of that is if all we're ever doing is listening to ourselves from Christian scholarship point of view, is that harmful? Should we be listening to people who are very different from us? Like, where does all that lie? That's kind of the essence of what I'm asking. I see. So in other words, that's what you mean by an echo chamber. So like you could be of a particular political perspective and therefore only listen to people outside or inside that perspective and anybody outside is immediately in your mind a liar. And and I guess you're wondering if theologically and from a religious standpoint, if, we're, if we do the same thing yeah. uh, with our beliefs. Yeah. I mean, so I, absolutely. I mean, I think you, I mean, just take a look at the current landscape we're in right now. You know, mm-hmm. we, um, Man, even a group of people like Southern Baptists that all will confess and affirm, and I genuinely believe everybody that does, uh, a core set of beliefs called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, I believe across the board, which is really what we all still believe. And yet there is deep, deep divide on further ideological grounds. In other Mm -hmm. words, uh, you know, we, we may all affirm the basic core set of doctrine, but then the way we interpret certain things And then certainly the way we would apply certain things, we could have vast disagreement with each other. And then once we're in those those kind of camps or groups or such, we can. It is human nature, not just non-Christian human nature. I mean, this is what human beings do. We we Mm -hmm. tend to surround ourselves with people that think the way we do uh, and process the way we do. And so absolutely we can get ourselves so firmly fixed into a, a kind of echo chamber that we can no wrong, longer really hear mm-hmm. relevant data and we can no longer um, really process in the right way. So I certainly think that that's a real, not just possibility, but a reality mm-hmm. in a lot of the things that we see happening here today. So can we, can that happen? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you, you think that, that, so what do we do then? Right? Yeah. Yeah. What do we do? And, and is it a common thing we should be on watch for? Is it like, kind of the natural place we go or is it an unnatural thing? Yeah. So, I mean, it's natural in the sense that it happens Mm -hmm. to all of us. I mean, I look, I have the same, I don't want to sit here and pretend I'm, you know, intellectually more honest than anybody else or sort of intellectually holier than thou as if this doesn't (laughs) happen to me too. 
it does happen to all of us. So it's natural in that sense. It will be okay. probably be most people's default disposition mm. to just d- continue in that pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, natural in a created way. Uh, in other words, is it natural by way of what God intended in creation? I don't think so. I think the fact that we do this uh, is a clear indication or a clear example of what ph- Christian philosophers have often referred to as the, quote, noetic effects of sin. And by noetic, what they mean is the sort of rational cognitive effects that sin has mm-hmm. on us. It's real easy to see when we think about the effects that sin has on us. It's real easy to think about it in moral terms. Mm-hmm. It's real easy to even think about it in maybe physical terms, right? So if somebody's an alcoholic, then clearly, you know, they're they're doing things or participating in things that hurt not just them, but other people. Mm-hmm. So there's a moral issue, but even uh, there can be physical problems, right? You mm-hmm. can get diseases of various kinds from this as well. But sin affects the way our minds work as well. So certainly I would tend to think that Adam and Eve prior to the garden, they probably thought more clearly than or prior to the fall, at least thought more clearly about issues than we do. That we do. Mm. But sin invades everything about the created order. And part of that's the human mind. Mm-hmm. And this is well documented throughout philosophical history. I mean, even people like Francis Bacon referred to these problems that we're, we're kind mm-hmm. of alluding to right here. He had a fancy description for them. He called them the idols of the mind. Mm. I'm forgetting he had four of them, but I, I forget exactly which one was which, but it was mm-hmm. things like, you know, we get locked into a certain vocabulary and we only use that vocabulary. A human yeah. vocabulary is not a perfect tool, yeah. right? I mean, English and Chinese or English and Greek or Hebrew or or Dutch, those are very different languages and they actually mm-hmm. function very differently. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we get locked into only one way of speaking, then that can have some limitations on our cognitive abilities as well. He has talked, he talks about the idol of like, you know, the marketplace and the tribe where essentially we, we get locked in with a particular group of people and we start to only think the way that they do. So mm-hmm. certainly it happens. It's natural in the sense that it happens to every one of us. It's, I would say it's probably not the way God intends us to, to function and operate. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do about this? Uh, well, I think, let me say this. Ultimately, I think this is why dialogue with people is so important. Mm-hmm. It's often said in theology, for example, that sh- theology should never be done in a closet, meaning mm-hmm. you should never do your theology in isolation from other people and from other voices, even mm-hmm. voices very different from yours. Because mm-hmm. one of the more helpful things that you can have as you do theological formation is dissent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need people to disagree with you. You need people to raise substantial problems with your view. And you need, in your responses to those critiques, to have the ability to to modify and morph certain things. Um, And so, for example, we need the ability to, as we get critiqued by somebody, to step back and say, well, is that the right way of articulating this or thinking about this? And, uh, and, And so that's important. So I think in short, the result of that means that you and I have to be able to have disagreement with each other and dialogue with each other. There are some problems that prevent us from doing this. We may, in fact, argue with people. I think, in fact, in our world today, we argue quite a lot with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not short on argumentation and we're not short on disagreement. What we're short on is the actual moral and epistemological humility Mm. necessary for that disagreement to be profitable. So mm-hmm. in other words, the disagreements that we have today only produce conflict 
They almost mm. never produce resolution. They almost never uh, produce agreement and, mm. and and stuff like that. Because uh, frankly, I think that we're just a we're at a moment when everybody's bowed up and puffed up. Mm-hmm. So here's where I would interject. If you want to know what I think about the um, the answer, the way forward to this this bubble that we can be in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the answer is to be able to have dialogue with people that we disagree with. But for that to actually prove profitable, philosophers, epistemologists talk a lot about something called epistemological virtue or okay. intellectual virtues. Okay? okay, And intellectual virtues are like moral virtues. In fact, sometimes pe- philosophers say, well, these really aren't a different category than just moral virtues. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're just virtues. Well, let's think for a minute about what virtues are. And I think we've talked about this in some other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, virtues are simply characteristics. Characteristics mm-hmm. true of you or characteristics true of me. Okay. Now, vices are also characteristics, mm-hmm. right? They're characteristics true of you or me. Vices, though, hurt you. They're characteristics you have that hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you have, if you're an alcoholic, for example, that's a characteristic you have, and it destroys you and it destroys other people around you, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a vice uh, or a character, vices are, that hurt you. Virtues are characteristics that do the opposite. They help in some way, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're life-producing for you and for other people around you. Mm-hmm. So examples of epistemological or intellectual virtues uh, like this would be things like humility, mm-hmm. uh, having the humility to admit that you could actually be wrong in the way you're interpreting things. That's a rare commodity in our world today, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, so having the humility to admit and own that your understanding of what mm-hmm. God has revealed mm-hmm. could be wrong. In other mm-hmm. words, I'm not denying or debating that the Bible is true. I, I fully affirm that. Mm-hmm. The question is, what do I do with it and what do you do with it as readers? It's the hermeneutical question. It's the mm-hmm. fact that you and I take the revealed word and now we interpret it in certain ways and we apply it in certain ways. And I, you know, I trust that God does not lie in anything he says, but my ability to to pro- appropriately apprehend that, I could I could mess that up quite badly. And so could you and so could anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to have the humility to admit that. Uh, if you don't have that humility, then disagreement and dissent's not going to help you out much. It's just going to mm-hmm. cause problem. Um, another one would be diligence. Diligence is an intellectual virtue. The the diligence to not settle for quick and easy answers, right? Because mm-hmm. we like cookie cutter answers. We like answers that we don't have to work hard for. We like answers that we don't have to labor towards. We like mm-hmm. people to just give us the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, not everything is is like that. Somebody right? has to find that bottom line in the right. first place. Sometimes, sometimes there are issues we have to deal with that are complicated mm-hmm. and that are difficult. And diligence is the ability to stay with it and to continue pursuing it until mm-hmm. we get to the place where we're starting to really try to wrap our head around it the best we possibly can. If you don't have humility, if you don't have diligence – then you're probably not going to be successful as a knower. And I think that's mm-hmm. especially true in theology today. Mm-hmm. Um, honesty is an intellectual virtue. Now, again, you can see here why some people say, no, those aren't any different from moral virtues. They're just they're just virtues, mm-hmm. whether you apply them to moral issues or you apply them to intellectual issues. Okay, fine. I don't care if there's a separate <laughs> category or not. I'm just simply saying that these virtues actually help us to yeah. get 
at the truth better, if I'm honest. I mean, look, sometimes we're just not actually willing to admit that our view is wrong or admit that our view has certain challenges. Take, for example, I mean, the classic debate between the Calvinist and the Arminian, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, both sides, when they get all mad and riled up with each other, Typically, what they do is they try to pretend like the other view is the only one that has these real problems and that their view is problem free. Mm-hmm. Now, look, every view has problems. Every view mm-hmm. has challenges to it. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest about what those are, admit what they are, and then let's try to – that your view has something that challenges it doesn't necessarily mean that your view is wrong. It just mm-hmm. means that, huh. That's something that I, I still need to work on and think that through. And having the honesty to, to do that, I think that helps. So in short, the, the answer to these, these echo chambers that we can get into is mm-hmm. disagreement and dissent. Mm-hmm. But that will be fruitless and va- in, uh, have no value to us at all unless you've actually got the moral and intellectual character to handle that the right way. Things like humility and honesty and mm-hmm. diligence, and there's a whole host of others. Um, but those are those are some things. I know we're doing sort of a little series in these podcasts on epistemological stuff. There is a chapter in the book that I do. Uh, How do we know? Mm-hmm. That deals with intellectual virtues. Oh, about. interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, in, in one of the areas that I find myself slipping into is like I think about whatever the area is. Let's just, for simplicity's sake, say it's my thought uh, or or theory or philosophy against a non-Christian one, not like mm-hmm. two Christian ones competing, but like a Christian and non-Christian just, just for simplicity. The, the area that I tend to find myself slipping into is I say, well, I'm on God's side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Not, not so much in like a prideful kind of way, but I'm like, I believe the truth. They don't believe the truth. Therefore mine must be right. You know, right. But it's really, there's a whole lot of layers in between me and that truth, of course, <laughs> my yeah. own ignorance and so forth and foolishness. Yeah. So certainly, I mean, like the way we frame the discussion so far sort of in, assumes that this disagreement and dissent is an in-house matter, like mm-hmm. between brothers and sisters that all affirm Jesus as their savior. Uh, but no, I, I would, look, some people may freak out over this. I don't know. It's just, just this to me has never worried me or bothered me that we're, we're doing anything out of bounds when we do this. But for me personally, I've always found that, frankly, some of the best dialogue partners I've ever had that really helped me to see the Christian perspective more clearly have been non-believers. Here's why. Mm-hmm. It's because they don't, they don't have any interest in it being true. In fact, they want to disprove it. So they're lobby, lobbying varsity-level objections at it. Mm-hmm. And if I can if Christianity can stand up against those kinds of objections and I've in the process been able to think it through a little more clearly, then I'm walking out the other side, I think with a stronger view. So let me give you two places in my career where I've seen this. Okay. First has to do with the arguments for God's existence. And I know we did a bunch of podcasts on that uh, earlier on in our time. Um, But I remember when I started getting into these arguments for God's existence, I was particularly interested in the historic versions of these arguments. Mm -hmm. And man, when you look back in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, there were particular versions of teleological arguments and, and cosmological arguments that were put forward. And the atheist philosophers leveled huge philosophical criticisms of those arguments that were thought to be successful by the mm-hmm. atheists and even by the theists to the point where theists pretty much stopped making these arguments for about a hundred mm-hmm. plus years. Okay. Wow. 
So then in the 1960s and 1970s with new astronomical discoveries about the cosmos and new physical discoveries about, you know, the laws of nature and such, and the metaphysical implications of this start to come back, all of a sudden these arguments for God's existence start to come back big time. And Mm -hmm. this time when they come back, they came back with all of the criticisms of the old versions in mind, and they were put together in such a way that they dodge a lot of those previous problems, so to speak. So the net effect of that was, as example number one is, that the criticisms of the atheist actually serve to, historically speaking, sharpen the arguments. And so that the arguments we put forward together today are much, much stronger arguments. Okay, Mm -hmm. So that's one example of where atheist and non-believer types of criticism have actually helped us strengthen our our arguments. Okay. Mm Another example of that in my own work came from the sort of change in trajectory in my thought from the move between substance dualism to Thomistic holomorphism about human persons. I started off holding very firmly and somewhat militantly to a substance dualist perspective. We've talked about that in previous Mm -hmm. podcasts. And um, it was through the study with with non-believing philosophers in England Mm -hmm. that I received criticism Mm -hmm. and, and feedback that caused me not to abandon Christianity mm-hmm. or the Bible, but rather to think, wait a minute, what if the way I've constructed this is not the right way? And yeah. I actually think that the view that I hold today is a greater fit with the Christian tradition than the previous views that I used to hold. Oh, and by the way, I got all that through the dialogue with a non-believer on that. So look, just as in the tribe, so to speak, the disagreement can help if we're postured with the right humility and honesty and stuff like that. I think even with non-believers, we actually can learn a lot through the dialogue with them. But again, none of these dialogues, disagreements or dissents, whatever you want to call them, are going to be anything but problematic for us unless we have the right kind of posture of soul. And mm-hmm. so I think that's what we got there. Yeah. In my mind, it seems to be coming back to that as well, because if you go into an argument with a non-Christian about Christian things, whether God's real or whatever you want to talk about, you know, when you go into it with a Christian, it's almost like your faith is not really being tested. Maybe your personal engagement's being tested, how kind Mm -hmm. of a person are you, how gracious are you, whatever. But when you go into it with a non-Christian, who's really kind of attacking your foundation of your worldview and all of these things, let's say. Right. It really causes you to say, was I standing on an echo chamber that I didn't realize? You know, Mm. I'm raised in the church. I've spent all my time in the church. I've only talked to people in the church, and now I'm not, let's hypothetically say. How strong was my faith in the first place? So it really requires you, in my mind, to kind of double down on your faith and show you where you're lacking. Yeah, I mean, look, for some people, it, it, it doesn't do that. Uh, for a lot of us, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's 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 different from person to person. I think that's a matter of, you know, human psychology and how, mm-hmm. how people are sort of intellectually put together and how they operate in that way. But, yeah. Um, yeah, for a lot of us, that's been exactly the thing. It's precisely the testing of that faith that made the faith stronger. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, anyway, yes, I do think we can get ourselves in echo chambers. I do think there's a way to address it, but it requires humility, honesty, diligence, and such. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks for that, Jamie. Thanks, man. Hey, everybody. This is Jamie and Joe again. 
If you like this podcast, would you leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? That helps other people find it. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear about them. Just go to jamiedew.com slash questions and send them in that way. And we'll take a look at the most frequently asked questions and give them a shot.